Hi everyone, welcome back to Voices of Western, the Humans of Western podcast. So if you're new, welcome. This is a podcast where we dive deeper into the personal lives of students, staff, and faculty at Western University. So before we begin, we wanted to thank you for taking time out of your day to listen to our episode. So my name is Milan, and today I'm joined by my fellow co-host, Ria. Thanks, Milan. So today our guest is Chris. Chris is a fifth-year student at Western University studying software engineering along with Ivy. Chris is passionate about student politics, culture, climate change, and so much more, and we're very excited to have him here today with us. So how are you doing today, Chris? I'm doing great. Uh, thank you both for having me, uh, Mel and Maria. That's great to hear. Um, so we're just going to get right into it. So. Can you tell us a bit more about yourself and what you do overall at Western? Yeah, um, so I'm probably like your typical student politics nerd. Um, so I think a lot of my involvement at Western was through the Undergraduate Engineering Society, the UBS. Um, I got involved as a first year rep um, and then I joined, I joined the executive team. And last year I was the president um, this year in my final year, I've been more involved outside of Ange. So, um, I contribute a lot to the climate crisis coalition. Um, so that group, they do like more grassroots advocacy at Western on climate change. They're not really affiliated formally with any other group on campus. Um, and I'm also one of the counselors for Ivy on the USC. Wow, that's like, that's very interesting seeing like an Ivy, a student part of like both Ivy and engineering. And I'm very excited to get to know more about like, what is that like? And actually like being part of those two programs, like both Ivy and engineering, you might have experienced like different cultures part of like the like, like Ivy culture, the engineering norm. So can you like tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, um, and I th think for sure these two different um, faculties or schools have different, I think, like cultures. Um, I think like an important thing to remember is that like within each of these groups, like there's diverse like subpopulations. And so often what we see at the top or the way we typically characterize like an Ivy student or an Eng student is no is true for all people. Um, but I would say to, I want to be fair um, to to like everyone I know in both groups, right? I would say Eng is far more collaborative, um, and I think that is really ingrained as part of the culture. Eng is a team sport, um, and I think that that's something that was um, kind of really um, encouraged in first year. It's a really difficult program, especially coming in through high school. So it's through collaboration and helping your peers out that everyone succeeds. Uh, and I'm really glad to see that even going into my fourth and fifth year, like this kind of mantra continues to be followed. Um, and I would say at Ivy, I think there's a lot more competition. Um, there's when you're looking for jobs or when you're trying to get grades, all of this has a much larger impact on your career once you leave the school. And that kind of shapes um, the classroom dynamic and the culture dynamic. But then to put a flip on it, I think um, when it came to my actual interests, I connected more with students at Ivy. There's more of that business people focused aspect to it. Um, whereas in engineering, I think the courses are more technical. 
Um, but I think because it was maybe like less professional and there's more of like a bro-y kind of culture there too, um, I made some of my closest friends while I was at Ivy. That's so interesting, um, being a part of two different cultures that kind of seem like they're on complete opposite ends of the spectrum, but you kind of get the best of both worlds um, in a way. Um, I think that's such an interesting perspective to have compared to like other science fields. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, no, I agree. And um, Ria, you can uh, like add on to this too. Like, for example, like both of us, we are like part of the science program. So mm -hmm. I think like that science faculty, like the culture when it comes to that, um, I like I, I, I get it, like the competition because like, yeah, like we're all competing for like that same module. So I can kind of relate when it comes to like that IV, like competing for like the same job aspect, the, like the money and all that. Um, but I also see like the collaboration because I remember when I first came to Western as a first year student, like some of our courses were pretty difficult. So like it was like through like the collaboration, like we be like seeing like your roommates who are part of the same program and you like you just work on that same assignment together and like see if you can like help each other out for that exam or midterm. So I like I, I, I can really I can I can see where like where, where those both cultures like come in. Yeah. Yeah just like in addition to the unique experiences that you've had as a student being a part of two different programs, we kind of wanted to also delve into your experience with extracurriculars. So just in particular, um, could you tell us a bit more about your positions with student advocacy and leadership? So that could be at Western or outside of Western. And I guess like a bit about how your experiences transformed the position or how they transformed you. Yeah. Um, so I, I was a real keener. Um, in first year, I ran to be one of the VPs on the UES. So I was, I was successful as a VP in my second year. Um, and I screwed up a lot in that role. That role was responsible for a lot of things. Um, I think I had like eight different commissioners. Um, th there's like three different publications. Like this was like the worst one for like a first year to come in and do. And I think what I learned from that role, and I think this kind of goes for all student leadership roles, is that majority of the time you'll spend will be getting the job done. And you need to have like a really strong vision of what you want to change and how you want to change it going in. Because every single year, and I was on the exact team for quite a while, you would reach that midway point through the year and be like, oh, shoot, like all these things I wanted to do, like, I've been really caught up just like doing the basics. Um, and so that was like a big learning piece for me. In the year after that, um, I was the vice president external, um, which I think engineering is probably the only um, faculty council with this role. Um, but this VP role is actually consistent across all universities in Canada. So um, there's a vice president external at all of our um, other engineering societies across the country. And we send this vice president external to either a provincial or federal um, student union. So this is where there's a lot of like, acronyms. So I'm not going <laughs> to go into like what ESCO is or what CFES is. Um, the point is I got the opportunity to meet other counterparts and other students um, from across the country. And so I, I really got involved, um, especially with the provincial students union here. Um, and the great learning piece there was like being able to see what others are doing in different places and bringing that back. Um, 
And so one thing that I found really impressive that other schools were doing and, and the provincial student union was doing was that they had this like open data tool. So you could go to like one Google Drive, and this sounds so simple, but I, I don't think many councils on campus have it. You can go to one Google Drive and find meeting minutes, agendas, budgets, reports for the whole history of the organization. Um, and sometimes like I'll compare it to the USC when these things are so big and complex, as someone who's new trying to get involved, having these open files available like makes all the difference. And it means that you don't have to like network your way in or talk to someone special to give you like that information. Like it's just available to anybody. So that was a big thing I did as VP external. I brought that back. Um, I was really big on transparency. I started forcing our exact meeting minutes to also be published on that um, like transparency tool. But yeah, I think those, um, like, I would say like one last, like, I guess the third point, and this is across all roles, is that I, I'd become really conscientious of like, is someone going to understand what I'm doing today in three years? Are they going to understand why I made this decision? Um, and that became like increasingly clear under COVID where like across like the spectrum of always students get involved, we had so much burnout, we had people quitting. And we couldn't get that continuity. Um, so a big part of like, I guess, my involvement now with the provincial student union and what I was doing last year on the UES is like making sure this next generation of student leaders um, understands the way we do things and that knowledge continues to get passed on. Um, a lot of these student orgs are more fragile than you'd think. Um, and so it's important that we always have people involved and informed. No, that's actually a, a very unique um, way to look at it too, because um, sometimes like the clubs I'm in, um, usually I don't know what's going on like as a general member, like what's going on at that top like exact position. So I, sometimes I feel like, I don't know, like I'm part, maybe I'm not part of that, um, like the bigger group or like um, maybe I'm just like, like just like doing the bare minimum if you don't know what's going on or what's like the end goal. And that's actually very interesting, like w way to see it. And because I, I, as a don right now, I think like I understand what mm -hmm. uh, like where you're saying because, um, we have this committee called RSAC, which is like our head like leaders, and then they actually um, release their meeting notes on our like owl page, so everyone has access to it. So like once you get to see that, um, like you under like you see like oh wait like maybe they really want to like see the change in the future. So no, that's like very interesting um way to look at it. And honestly, right as you were talking about that point, how you're halfway through the year and then you suddenly like realize that half the things that were on your agenda, you didn't even like get to the first point. I think that's something that so many people can relate to. Um, I was just thinking to myself, I was like, damn, I think I just did the same thing <laughs> if I was to go back. So yeah, I think that's something that anybody who's listening to this can really carry forward um, with positions that they're in right now or positions that they want to apply to in the future, coming in with a clear vision can make you really stand out, I think, from other people who might have the same position. And it can actually make sure that, you know, you're having that impact that you intended to have when you applied um, to that role. So yeah, thanks mm -hmm. for bringing that up. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, you have so much power. Like once you're in the role, I think we, we take for granted how much power we have to like make change. And so it's always good to like look back and be like, I did something, you know, like 
um, something a little bit more than the job description. Yeah. No, yeah, and, and it yeah. just like snowballs. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, I, I yeah, exactly. I was just gonna say the same thing. Like it does really uh, snowball. Um, and I also another point, like when you mentioned about transparency and communication, I think that's like another thing we also like take for granted when it comes to like these clubs because once you lack that communication between your uh, like exec members with the general members like the team just falls apart um there, there's no transparency it's just it, it, it re I think it's really the base and the foundation of like if you want to get an idea out or goal forward you have to have that communication amongst us otherwise like if there's if you don't know what's going on you can't you can't really have an input on like the idea itself yeah I um, definitely agree yeah and I also think that it doesn't just like apply to positions within school um I mean not like particularly related to academic positions even stuff that's outside of let's say engineering or ivy um like for example with like sustainability organizations things like that you can still carry forward like the same lessons um so I think this is something that you did bring up um, near the beginning of the podcast as well, was your involvement with the Climate Crisis Coalition. Um, we were wondering if you could tell us a bit more about your in involvement with the team and maybe focusing on some of the things that they um, focus on, like fossil fuel divestment, for example. Yeah. Um, so I got involved with the Climate Crisis Coalition, the CCC, um, early 2022. Um, so I was finishing up my term as UBS president. And I saw like, I like followed them on Instagram, I think. And I saw they were like promoting like a general meeting. And I was like, sure, like, what the heck, I'm going to sign up for this. Um, so I show up to this meeting, and I it's on zoom, I see what's going on. And I really wanted to get more involved. Um, and I knew that like, coming out of um, the presidential role, I'd have a lot more time to dedicate myself to something I'm really passionate about. Um, and so, yeah, like eventually I started attending regular meetings um, and I think I, I've learned a lot. Um, it's about a year now in the past year. So the, um, the Climate Crisis Coalition right now, our main focus is fossil fuel divestment and this is just one part of like the dozens of different parts of our economy parts of our the way we live that needs to be changed in order to meet net zero by 2050 right that's our that's our big overarching goal um and so it's been about i think two or three years that the climate crisis coalition has been pushing for fossil fuel divestment and i'll break down what exactly that means um, so Western University operates a, um, a midterm portfolio and an operating endowment fund. These are basically pools of money that are put into investments and the returns on those investments are then brought back to the university to support special initiatives, research, et cetera. And so what divestment is saying, the principle behind this strategy is that we don't think that we should be investing in whether it be stocks, an ETF, all these different financial instruments, if those instruments are invested in a company um, that engages in the fossil fuel industry, I would say like the, the value chain, 
So like exploration, extraction, drilling, transportation through pipelines, um, we think we should divest from them. And the main argument is moral. It's that if we know that these companies are the, and, and as a result, the way we use that energy is the primary um, cause for climate change, then it is immoral to make a profit off of their operations. That's the whole goal of this. So right now in Canada, 12 other post-secondary institutions have already committed to divest by 2030 latest. Um, it's not something that happens overnight. This needs to be managed over years to make sure there isn't a large loss in the portfolio. Um, and so the CCC has been trying different strategies to, to get students involved. We did um, an open letter. Um, there's also an open letter released by over a hundred professors and staff at Western over the summer. Um, we've been, um, we did one action um, on campus. We had this banner <laughs> that eventually got taken down. Um, we're hoping to do an op-ed in the Gazette. Um, and right now we're just meeting on a weekly basis to kind of manage these different activities. And um, there's other things that, that we do, but the main focus has been divestment. Okay, yeah, no, um, I, that, that is also a very um, interesting um, a, a commitment you also have a part of, um, a, like, a part of, like, student advocacy. Like, how do you, like, bring in, like, student advocacy in the Student um, Climate Coalition? Like, how do you think your, like, commitment in that has brought you into your role in the Student Climate Coalition? Yeah, it was, it was very interesting going from like being the president of a faculty where I have a lot of like legitimate power, like I, I hold an office and like I can email the Dean and they will respond to me in my capacity as that role to the complete opposite where like, I'm an activist that we're not even ratified by the USC. We don't even have the benefit of a club on this campus. Um, and so I, I, I think the big learning there was that, um, there's impact to be made everywhere. Um, and so even though we, I, there's an exchange, we don't have the same institutional or legitimate power as a student union might have, we have a lot more flexibility. Um, we, can, we can be a little bit more like flashy and not have to worry about reputations or long-term ramifications because we're, we're doing the grassroots advocacy. Um, and so I think, I would hope to see like more students who are involved in the student politics, like the system and bureaucracy of it all, also get involved with grassroots organizing because you then see the challenge and the, like the challenge for these two groups to work together, even though they might believe in the same goals. Um, and I think that's really how change works, right? You have a bunch of citizens come together about an issue they care about they lobby their elected officials, or they lobby the correct groups to get that change to happen because otherwise it wouldn't be heard. There's no, so I'm really interested in seeing, you know what I mean, as, as I'm graduating, but I really hope that that more students get involved in a variety of ways. Cause I really think, um, you know, like every like grassroots advocacy group could use an extra few hands. Um, that's just the way it goes, but it's interesting that there's different kind of players in the student advocacy system and they all need to work together really. Yeah. 
Yeah, I do think that having an organization like the Climate Crisis Coalition is so important because, like you said, um, it's different because they might not be directly related to Western or like the USC, but that also allows the club to have a bit more freedom in what they want to say and be more transparent about their messages in a way. So I think it's really important to have organizations like that. And I do hope that in this near future, they are ratified as a club because they do have a considerable impact on so many students. I would even like challenge that. Um, I like it's so like our club system right now is actually like quite strained. Um, and it's it's hard to get new clubs approved because we have a lot of students and a lot of clubs and limited resources. Um, but I would actually think the CCC should remain unratified because then that gives us more like autonomy um, and it allows us to be more member driven. Once you become a club, you have to follow a constitution that is bound by the USC. Um, you have to approve every single event um, by the USC. Um, so there's a lot of like red tape that comes with that, that um, you know, I mean, if the future CCC folks want to pursue it, um, but I imagine because of the nature and our strengths as being more um, decentralized, I don't think they would choose to. Yeah. That's actually very interesting, too, because Humans of Western is also not a ratified club. It's like interesting. UCC yeah. And the main reason was also because we would have to like have everything approved. So like we have a lot of flexibility when it's not ratified. So that is an also very interesting point. And I think right. like um let's like maybe uh switch gears and looping back to um IV could you like maybe give our listeners an inside scoop about the program like perks and like maybe like areas of improvement and maybe you can like add in like how your um experience with a part of these clubs have changed like have inputted that point of view. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, I'm by no means like have like a mainstream like view on like Ivy as like a school. Um, but I, I think the first thing that goes without saying is like Ivy is a very expensive program. Um, I think it is the most expensive undergraduate program, um, if not in the top three and they're all business schools. Um, and so as, as I comment on, I guess like what happens within the school and, and what is being taught, um, it's always important to remember that this is happening in a backdrop where there's a huge financial barrier for a lot of students to even enter this school and have access to this. So Ivy is basically split up into two years. The first year is your core courses and that's basic competencies on general business topics, operations, strategy, communications, marketing. It was very helpful um, to me as an engineering student, um, like, you mentioned, or like it's been said, like we focus a lot on the technical stuff. Um, whereas now in Ivy, especially through the case method, we're literally being put into scenarios where we're making decisions. Um, and we're having a conversation in class about like, should you do this, should you do that, why? And then connecting it back to a general framework. Um, in the second year, you get a lot of freedom and flexibility to choose which topics you wanna focus on. Um, and so for myself, I took more so courses that focused on sustainability, um, and I'm also part of the sustainability certificate. I'm also taking social enterprise, um, 
So, but my friend, my like my really close friend, my roommate, he was really into finance. So we took all these finance courses. So you get that core competencies in the first year. And then in the second year, um, you more so get to choose from a pretty good menu. Um, now, going back to, I guess, the second part of the question, like what are the areas for improvement? Um, so I will say there's a lot of amazing work happening right now. Um, and I, I guess there's so much work to do in so little time, but um, especially myself and other folks who care about sustainability at Ivy, we've been working with the HBA1 program office. We've been working with the Dean's office on getting um, some really important sustainability initiatives pushed through the school. Um, so there's new courses coming out that um, will focus on ESG, for example. Um, we're hoping we can get even more courses because as sustainability spreads its tentacles across the whole business world, there's a sustainability aspect to everything. And so the second part of those changes is um, about embedding sustainability into all parts of business, um, because it should always be a consideration on our minds, which is more challenging because how do you teach a strategy course while also focusing on sustainability? Are these topics separate? Is it is it help or hurt the teaching method? Like, we don't know. Um, and so it, it is a challenge even for a lot of professors who want to incorporate it. Um, but they, you know what I mean? Like they have, they have limited time and, and so much curriculum. Um, other improvements. Um, I, I have had like some beef with the bell curve. Um, so I think it's an seven, I'm gonna misquote the number, but I'm pretty sure we're belled to an 80 um, with a standard deviation of two. And I think in second year, it's an 82 with a similar standard deviation. Don't quote me on that. Um, but it's well understood that in every course, there's gonna be um, a curve. So, so I really question like what, what what's like the philosophy behind this? I think the benefits that it makes it easy to compare students within a course, within a grade, um, but then there's knock on effects for students who are applying for more education or competing in a field where your employer doesn't understand what IV is. Like you can't just assume that they know IV curves to an 80. Um, so there's all these things there, but um, that's one thing I wish there, it, it was there's a really clear philosophy behind it. Cause I don't think wrong with the bell curve itself as long as it's well like, understood why it's in place um yeah, that's that's my ramble on my take on ivy i guess um at least current improvements happening but overall like having been in this school now for three years i do think there's a lot of a lot of positive change happening yeah thank you for that little inside scoop um as a science student, I haven't really had that perspective on what Ivy is really like. And I think there are a lot of like misconceptions that exist around it. So it's nice to hear how, you know, you have this first year where you kind of get to explore different options um, or sorry, the first year where it's a bit more general. And then the second year where you actually get to choose specific options. Um, and it was really interesting how you brought up the point about like trying to embed sustainability in different courses which seems like, oh, 
it should be done um, for everything, but it is a really difficult thing to do. Um, and it, it'll take time, but maybe it'll happen in other disciplines as well. Mm -hmm. I agree. And I also um, liked how you brought, the, brought up the idea of the bell curve. And I remember, um, because when I was in high school, I was part of the, um, like the AP program. And in, and in, I know in like IB and AP, they also have bell curves. And um, it, it was, I remember when I was in grade 10, how in my, in my program, they got rid of the bell curve because they didn't deem fair to other students who were applying to the same program because not like every university, um, it, because every university treat every student are the same. Um, even though you're an AP or in a regular stream, it did not matter. You, it was they were just looking at the marks. So, um, if you so for example, like an like an AP mark, it didn't it didn't it made no difference. So because of that, they got rid of the bell curve because they didn't see it was like fair to like the students who were in the regular stream. But that was for the AP program, and in the IB program, they still had that bell curve so I remember there was just so much like arguments between like the two programs and that's interesting how the same concept is in Ivy I actually did not know the bell curve was high that high that that, that was like that was shocking to me and um yeah no that was I, I think that was a very interesting point too and um, actually, um, going back to what Bria said about the misconceptions, um, I've, let's transition to a segment. And our segment this for this episode is Mythbusters. So, for example, as someone like me and Bria, who are not in science and who is now well-versed of the IV and engineering programs, I'm curious to see which of these myths are true. So the first myth is, engineers are work with like engineers work with machines not with people is that true or false um yeah i would say that engineers must work with both um so uh, i think when you look at what an engineer does on paper for sure a lot of the work we do is technical um but if you want to be a professional engineer in ontario and we're we're actually regulated we're a self-regulated profession in ontario there's a code of ethics you have to follow um, and you have a responsibility to society. You have a responsibility to things broader than, than your machine. So even if you're directly working with a machine, it's always going to impact people. Um, so absolutely both. I definitely do see that as with like other profession professions as well. It can kind of be easy to assume that with like more math or science-based courses, oh, you're gonna be working in a lab or with machines, but every single project that you do, there's a purpose to it. So it's definitely gonna have an, an impact on somebody. So yeah, thank you for breaking down that first myth. Um, and I guess the second one that we have down here, you have kind of talked about this, um, but we would love to expand on it. So there's engineering, business, and environmental work are completely different fields with no overlap. So I think the way that most of these three things are done right now, it's like your triple Venn diagram, you have like three circles and maybe two overlap, maybe three overlap in some places. Um, they're for sure not separate. I think in an ideal world, your triple Venn diagram is actually one circle, right? Because engineering, business, and the environment, 
maybe there's some things that are like the engineering is not related right but when we talk about people and the environment like everything has to be aligned um and if there's some things that we do today where there aren't alignment between these three things um or there's an alignment with engineering business with the environment then i think we should be wondering okay what are what are the eventual um costs to this um what is the environmental impact here so they're for sure there's for sure places on that triple venn diagram and in the ideal world they're always connected that that makes sense and yeah thank you for sharing that and our next myth is all engineers are math geniuses yeah that's a no um <laughs> and like i think for sure your average engineer is like better at math than like your average university student um but engineering is like a lot less about like hardcore like mathematics and more about problem solving um like we use calculators like um it's really not about doing the number crunching it's about using that number crunching to then apply it to a problem um and build something so it, maybe even going further like i'm in software engineering um i didn't take calc past second year so um we get off early but that said like my field does not require like a lot of math for maybe it does like for I guess like fundamentals and understanding the principles of software engineering, but you know, every day you're not really encountering hard math. So I think I really needed that to be said out loud. <laughs> I was, oh my God, I don't know if other people can relate to this, but like I was considering engineering at one point and I still remember like my dad telling me like, you're not built for math. So that means you're not built for engineering. So I can just, you know, kind of go back to him and be like, told you so. <laughs> but yeah, I think that's something that we really needed to kind of uncover and dispel. So thanks for doing that. And then I guess this goes back to the impact that engineers have, the impact that their work has. So is this true? So do engineers wear an iron ring to remind them of the impact of their work? I think it's always on, the, on their pinky, right? Yeah. Um, so I think that's mostly correct. Um, so once you graduate um, or in your last year of engineering, um, we have what is called a ritual of the calling of the engineer. Um, and there are different camps across the country. And these camps are, they're essentially overseen by these leaders called wardens. Um, and they, I think at this ritual, they present you with the iron ring. I've never been to a ritual, but I will this year. Um, and you wear it on your pinky. And so the idea is, is whenever you're signing off on a document, your ring will be touching um, what you sign as a reminder of your responsibility. Um, I do want to kind of follow up on that, that ritual of the calling of the engineer. It's done very differently across Canada. Um, but that's actually been a little bit of a hot button issue. Um, it's been discussed at different areas of the engineering profession. So we have like advocacy groups, we have um, professional organizations. Um, there's a lot of like civil society within engineering, which is very interesting. But there's been talk about the, the colonial history of this um, ritual. Um, and especially as we as a practice need to move forward, there's been a lot of reflecting happening there. 
Um, so if anyone's interested in learning more about that, you can probably search it up. Um, there's been some interesting conversation going on. Oh, wow. Yeah, no, I did not know there was history behind that ring. That's actually very interesting. Yeah. Um, and actually switching from Eng, ABBA Ivy. So Ivy students prioritize uh, competition over collaboration. Um, I think we did touch upon this, but um, maybe a little more elaboration. Yeah, um, I would say it depends on the person. Um, and I think it's, and for example, I think I was far more competitive in HBA1. And now that I'm near graduation, I'm a lot more chill. I think that's just the way things go. Um, but I think everyone's different in the way that they, they approach their academics. And I wouldn't say there's an overall, I wouldn't say either of Ivy. I think you brought up a really important point, um, the fact that the way that a program is, it's kind of shaped by the way that, um, I guess, like the students behave in a way. It's really important to take a look at things individually. Like that applies to, I think, any program, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I don't know if it's like the 80-20 rule um, or something like that, but it is shaped by, you know, what like students in the program do, but it's also shaped by like what everyone outside sees, right? And so when I think about like Ivy culture, Eng culture, um, it's usually like the loudest or like the most like outgoing that students outside our faculty tend to see. And then those different groups that, um, you know what I mean, like participate in our culture like differently, that's that has less of a platform. Um, but like I for sure seen that on both sides where there's, there's different groups and it's all a part of the community and we're all, um, we all work together. Um, but there's different kind of groups that um, tend to like be your placeholder representatives. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, you brought up a very good point, Rhea. And I think like, for example, like when I was going to med like, like MedSci, competitive, um, like <laughs> an all like competitive, no, like no sleep, whatever. But yeah, no, I really do think like, like it, 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 you make the program and also like what you see outside does also make the program um and yeah i think the last question is and students have a secret lair somewhere on campus it's, it's not a secret layer um but the undergraduate engineering society does have a student lounge um we usually just call it the ubs short for the ubs lounge um, it's in Spencer Engineering Building, room 1001. Um, it's, um, it has character, the room has character. Um, it, it's pretty old, so I'm pretty sure Seb was built in like the 50s, 60s. Um, don't quote me on that. I, I should know this. <laughs> um, and in that room, there's like place for students to work. Um, we have a, um, I think it's like a piano. Um, but you can like, it has like an audio jack. So it's like actually like a speaker as well. Um, there's lots of like murals on the wall. And we also have our UBS offices and our plus minus store where we sell merch and other cool stuff. Um, that used to be like the focal point of like engineering student life. And then ACE have opened. And so ACE have opened in my first year. Um, and so now all the new kids, the younger kids like hang out there and that's like the new cool hangout spot. Um, but sub 1001 is the, the OG bench spot. Yeah. I mean, 
I would, it's, it's just something that I've always been curious about. Because if you think of science students, it's like, oh, they're all packed at Taylor or like Weldon. I'm always like, yo, where, where are all the engineers at? <laughs> so it's good to know there, there is, I mean, it's not a secret layer, but I'm, I'm going to call it that still. <laughs> I mean, there's tons, there's tons of eng kids, uh, like, you know, like Weldon, Taylor, uh, we're everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> even better yeah that's good to know (laughs) and um yeah that actually wraps up our mythbusters i have been enlightened of the um whether what's true what's false so i'm glad um i'm glad you um were here to um let us know what was um what are the myths of um engineering and ivy and that actually wraps up today's episode so thank you so much chris for um being here on our podcast and telling us about the ivy life the eng life and also being part of student advocacy and um the climate crisis coalition and um, be sure to follow us on our socials. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and you can find this episode on any platform, podcast platform you use, for example, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and more. And we hope you all enjoyed it and make sure to look out for our next episode next week. So thank you again, Chris, and we'll see you again later. Thank you both. <laughs>